Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Today is the 18th of April, 2014, here in Japan. And today we're joined on the line by Dr. Merrill Nass, a practicing physician who is also someone who has responded to my call from our previous interview with Robbie Martin about the anthrax uh, attacks of 2001 and got in touch with me regarding her own investigation at anthraxvaccine.blogspot.com, which is a wealth of information on a number of subjects. But of course, she has also been covering and, and following the anthrax investigation and the conclusion that the anthrax attacks of 2001 were perpetrated by Bruce Ivins and Bruce Ivins alone. Uh, Dr. Merrill Nass, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, let's start, first of all, uh, this is your first time on the program, so perhaps you can yeah. just start by telling us a little bit about your background and, uh, and what, what, how it is you know about this case. Okay. Um, in 1989, um, students at the University of Massachusetts began investigating Pentagon contracts and found one that had to do with improving anthrax vaccine. I was asked to uh, look into this contract and help the students and some of their professors uh, figure out whether this was was a germ warfare contract. What I found was that the contract, although it was titled Studies to Do a Better Vaccine, was actually about some rudimentary genetic engineering of anthrax. And uh, it turned out that the curriculum vitae of the professor who was doing the research um, showed nothing in a you know, 30 or 40 year career that had ever had anything to do with vaccines. So I was piqued by this and as was the, um, the Quaker AFSC local group. And so we began working together to try to understand what was going on at UMass and what the, the biological defense research program at Fort Detrick was doing. And I, investigated this by reading articles about anthrax, and I decided, since anthrax was supposed to be the quintessential biological weapon, that I would go back and read about all anthrax epidemics for the last 15 years to see whether, in fact, it looked like it had been used as a biological weapon. Well, I did that, I did, and I made two discoveries. One was that the United States... Um, biological defense research program was actually going against its own mission statement and what many people thought were the the sort of mores of biodefense research. So they were doing certain things that seemed to be more along the offensive part of the spectrum rather than defensive. And I wrote a paper about that. The other discovery I made was that um, there was one epidemic in the last 15 years that was completely different from all the others and it occurred in what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. It happens to have been the largest epidemic of anthrax in humans recorded in, you know, in the history that we have. So I found that the, you know, I just realized that this epidemic didn't look anything like the others. It had, um, it spread, whereas anthrax doesn't really spread. It's a soil-based organism, and if you um, are an animal grazing it in that soil, you may pick it up, but it doesn't spread from place to place generally. In, in Rhodesia, however, it's spread to many areas, and it seemed to um, 
uh, obey a uh, a color barrier. So, in other words, Rhodesia was like South Africa, divided. Um, and it was an apartheid government. It was actually in the middle of a civil war when when this outbreak occurred, and there were areas that were reserved for that for black habitation and areas for white people. And so the anthrax attacks, more than 99% were all in black areas and not in white. Also, they uh, the attacks paid attention to national borders. So they would occur in an area near the border of Zimbabwe, but there were never any occurrences on the other side of the border. There were a number of other odd features of this epidemic. So I spent three years um, getting all the information really that existed about the epidemic, made a trip to Zimbabwe, looked at their figures, and wrote a paper that was fairly persuasive about the fact that this was biological warfare, and that was published in 1992. In the process of doing the research for these two papers, I read an enormous amount, and Virtually, I read everything that had been that was accessible that had been written about anthrax. Um, I had even made trips to the Kentway Library at Harvard and gotten old um, copies of it had a different name, but the New England Journal of Medicine from the mid 1800s, and these pages were crumbling in my fingers, and I could read about cases that were described then when there was more anthrax than there is now. So I had sort of a broad, a broad maybe superficial understanding of anthrax. And um, then subsequent, and, and biological warfare. Only through reading. I have never worked in a lab with anthrax. Um, then sort of events would catch up to me. So that um, in 19... 1991, there was the Gulf War, and Saddam Hussein had anthrax, and everybody was interested suddenly in biological warfare and anthrax. So, you know, I was called to sort of get involved with that, and I was a spokesperson for Physicians for Social Responsibility at that point. Then uh, later, when other sort of issues or questions came up that had to do with anthrax and bioterrorism, I was often... Um, contacted. And then in 1997, the government said it was going to vaccinate everybody in the military, two, two and a half million people against anthrax. Well, because I'd read all the literature, I knew that this was an unproven vaccine. It had been licensed before the FDA actually licensed vaccines. The the evidence that FDA normally requires to show that a vaccine works and that it's and that it's safe had actually never been supplied for this vaccine. And so I wrote a paper, a little short paper in an afternoon, um, pointing out that, that this was the state of knowledge about the vaccine and that, in fact, a congressional hearing had questioned whether the vaccine might be related to Gulf War syndrome. Well, you know, I didn't think too much of it. This was just information I had, and I was putting it out there. But um, it turned out that the vaccine actually did make people sick. And um, as time went by, I, you know, I was asked to write a review article. I was asked to testify before a congressional committee. And um, 
as more information came out, it became clear that there were, you know, huge problems with the vaccine, um, and and that there was an awful lot of money involved. So that the, the company that now makes anthrax vaccine bought the um, the manufacturing facility from the state of Michigan for about $25 million, and they have made over $2 billion on it since then. They also have had over 50 lobbyists in Washington. Um, let's see. I um, slightly knew Bruce Ivins um, because we had met at a conference on bioterrorism and biodefense in 1991, and I attended several international anthrax conferences, um, certainly in 1998 and in 2001. Um, Let me see. So when, and Bruce and I, um, you know, knew each other. We shared papers and information occasionally, maybe every couple of years, not much. But we knew each other. We were friendly. And, um, of course, when the anthrax letters stuff came out, um, as I read about the investigation, and actually even even when the letters were first sent, um, you may recall that there was a lot of confusion, a lot of different uh, responses by different branches of the government. And at that time, major media came to me um, for interviews and asked me, questions about the anthrax and because I did have this background of (laughs) a lot of reading I actually knew how anthrax you know I knew more than many of the CDC scientists because they were studying experiments that were being done now with anthrax and yet I had read about anthrax being spread. In fact, dried anthrax, inhalation anthrax occurring in factories in the early 1900s, for example. And so I just had a different piece of knowledge than other people who probably knew much more than I. And so I was, again, um, you know, called to respond to this and subsequently started paying close attention to the case. And found that the way the case was being investigated didn't make any sense to me. And then, uh, you know, I, I wrote a couple of things, not much. And uh, again, people would share information with me. So um, as you can imagine, uh, people who knew Steve Hatfield contacted me and uh, people who knew Bruce Ivins. And I, I was just a sort of a conduit for information. Um, When the FBI, when Bruce committed suicide, which was at the very end of July 2008, um, David Willman came out with um, a sort of scoop. Um, David Willman was the major investigative reporter for the LA Times. And he uh, reported on Ivan's as if it was a foregone conclusion that Ivan's had sent the anthrax letters. So David, who, who I've met once or twice, um, must have been sharing information with the FBI. He, he certainly <laughs> he got a packet of information from me at one point earlier, and um, he 
sort of presented the FBI's case in the media. Now, oddly enough, I was when the case story came out on August 1st, I was due to visit with some friends, and that visit got canceled at the last minute. So I had a three-day weekend with nothing planned, which was extremely unusual. And uh, so I was able to sort of read everything that was published and responded to it in real time, saying these these things don't make sense. So, so sort of that's how I got more involved with the case and uh, subsequently on my blog put out my opinion as various pieces of the case unfolded over time. Well, you, you clearly have extensive knowledge of this case, so I'm going to start by picking your brain on this, but just to make sure everyone's on the same page, of course we were talking about the anthrax letters that were postmarked between September 8th and October 9th of 2001, although some of them were opened at a later date. They killed five and injured 17 others, and they were targeted at ABC News, CBS News, NBC News, New York Post, National Enquirer, Senators Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy. And um, obviously, there's a, there's a lot to go through just in terms of the, the official story. But I think perhaps the best way to start interrogating the conclusions of the FBI investigation that this was Dr. Bruce Ivins working alone, I think what we should do is lay out that case that the FBI eventually came up with and, and the different pieces that support that. And you can tell us where this case goes wrong or which of these facts are not true. So, for mm-hmm. example, it's often argued that, well, Dr. Bruce Ivins was in charge of the murder weapon, so to speak, the RM. R1029 flask, which contained the mother spores, which produced the the daughter spores that were uh, found in these anthrax letters. He was uh, caught trying to destroy the smoking gun evidence um, by uh, by cleaning up the the, the affected areas. Uh, he was a diagnosed sociopath. Uh, he was uh, um, he had worked with anth- Bacillus anthracis for over 20 years. Um, he accessed the locked suite where the RMR-1029 flask was stored at the times the anthrax attacks would have been prepared. He was alone and unsupervised in the lab uh, during the the hours and weekends during which the anthrax would have been prepared. His overtime hours in 2000 and 2001 show that in August they, they began spiking to levels about three or four times his usual overtime levels in September of 2001, reaching over 10 times the, the amount of overtime he usually had. Uh, he had multiple motives for committing these attacks. He had no verifiable alibi. He had serious mental problems. And I suppose there are others, but I think we'll leave it at that. So let's start mm-hmm. picking this this case apart. And I guess we should start with the so-called murder weapon, the RMR-1029 flask from which these, right. these daughter spores were produced, and the fact that Bruce Ivins did have charge of this and was alone and unsupervised with that flask during the times at which this anthrax would have been prepared. Okay. Um, I'm pleased to see that despite your sophistication, you have already made a few wrong assumptions, which um, the FBI case was designed to sort of inculcate in people's minds a lot of wrong thinking about the case. So the first issue is, did the spores actually come from RMR 1029? And everybody believed that they had because the FBI said they had had a perfect match. Now, the FBI closed its case in 2010. In 2008, uh, this was an odd thing also, um, the FBI asked the National Academy of Sciences to perform a study of the scientific part of the investigation. And this was announced 
by um, the head of the FBI, Mueller, at a congressional hearing. He had to appear at two congressional hearings in September 2008 to answer questions about the anthrax letters and the FBI's case. This was, um, you know, a month and a half after they said they'd closed it. And although the FBI had talked to NAS previously about the possibility of doing this study, um, it was said in at least one place that NAS didn't know they were actually going to get this contract until Mueller actually announced it. And it appeared to me, I happened to be at the hearing as a witness, um, not a witness, sorry, I, I was witnessing it, I was not speaking at that hearing, um, that Mueller uh, brought this up as a way to sort of circumvent uh, other investigations that these congressional committees might do. He, he answered very few questions and told the committees, both the Senate and House committees, that he'd have to talk to them and private sessions. And this was, a, the, the Senate hearing was the famous one where Leahy said, you know, he wasn't, con he thought it was likely that there were multiple perpetrators or something to that effect. I don't remember his words. And um, he was clearly very unsatisfied with the, with the FBI's case. Everybody was unsatisfied with the way Mueller was answering questions. Okay, so they, the FBI makes a contract with a, with NAS to form a committee and investigate their scientific research. When the NAS was ready to complete its work, it writes a draft report. This went to the FBI. The FBI didn't like it. Well, that's my, that's my take on it. FBI, which had promised to give them all the information they could want, you know, except they were not going to give them classified information, suddenly dumps 600 pages of more information on them that has to do with, or at least part of it had to do with um, anthrax that was supposedly found in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Now, what this had to do with the anthrax case science is unclear. I haven't read the, those papers. I guess you could probably go to the NAS library in Washington and read them. But this slowed down the NAS's report as they dealt with all this other stuff. Then, in early 2010, FBI closed the case. Now, NAS's report wasn't out there. So FBI closed the case in 2010. They got lots of publicity, issued a big report, which on its uh, superficially looked very convincing, but when you dug down into it, there were loads of holes, I mean, several dozen holes. What happened then is people in the government were still not, these are things that most people don't know because they weren't widely reported. But shortly afterwards, so, that, so FBI closed its case in February of 2010, and in March of 2010, Congress voted, uh, sorry, not Congress, the House of Representatives voted to have an independent investigation. Okay? So Congress, at least the House, was not satisfied with the FBI's case. What happened then is that the Obama administration went back to Congress and, and uh, through the head of the Office of Management and Budget, Peter Orzag, told Congress that they didn't like several things in this um, intelligence bill and, they were, and that the president would veto it. 
if they didn't take these things out, and one of them was the independent anthrax investigation. So that investigation was not to be. Um, it was not until about a year later that the National Academy of Sciences report actually was issued. And what it said was that we're not actually sure that RMR 1029 was the parent for the, supplied the spores that were then regrown to form, to, to create the spores that were in anthrax letters. Now, it's, it's a long report. There's a lot of detail, but, but what I'd like to point out is that the NAS reviewed the FBI's science and what is said between, they say clearly that there's no proof of RMR 1029 being the parent, but what is said between the lines, you have to look for it, but it's clearly there, is that the FBI cherry-picked certain investigations. So, for example, although the FBI had four anthrax letters, it decided to only look at three of them for this morphotype analysis. There was no explanation why it didn't choose sports from the fourth letter. When it looked at morphotypes, there were a number of morphotypes, it decided to look at four. What happened to the others? Who knows? When FBI did its science and came up with this morphotype analysis that said there were eight specimens of the 1,070 that they looked at, which actually contained um, the same morphotypes as the anthrax letters, um, what was not said is, what a, wait a minute, um, there were eight that had those morphotypes, but USAMRID or Fort Detrick, the U.S. Biodefense Establishment, had submitted over 500 samples. Probably many of those samples had originated from Ivan's flask since he was the main supplier of, you know, bulk anthrax. I mean, this was just a, you know, this was your storage of your general high-potency anthrax. Now, it was used for testing vaccines, vaccine candidates uh, in animals, but um, it was shared widely around Fort Detrick, and um, it may or may not have been shared internationally, but there's no reason to think it would not have been. The, the flask, all the different um, contributors to the collection of spores in that flask came together in 1997. Um, so from 1997 to 2001, hundreds of people at Fort Detrick had access to the room where this flask was stored. It's also worthwhile to mention that Ivan's notes indicate that, that he found a um, an anomaly, that there were some milliliters, uh, several milliliters of missing liquid from that flask, you know, a while before the anthrax letters. Another thing I want to point out is that um, in bioterrorism, if you are a clever bioterrorist, you're, go you're not going to use evidence that is going to implicate yourself. Now, these letters were very carefully the person who sent these letters or persons, I would suspect they are persons because many different skills were required, but um, they were forensically extremely clean. Uh, there, 
the envelopes and the letters had been photocopied so that the ink couldn't be checked. Um, they used stamped envelopes so there was no saliva, there were no fingerprints, there was no hair. You know, these, this was done very carefully. Um, what Ivan's and pretty much everybody in, in the field of biodefense knew is that you can strain type anthrax, you can sort of tell in various ways where it came from. In, in fact, in the paper that I wrote about Zimbabwe, I had talked about the possibility of uh, strain typing the anthrax that appeared in Zimbabwe and trying to figure out where that came from. So we're going back, that was, my paper was 1992, and Ivans was one of the people who had actually um, read a, an earlier version of the paper, made comments for me, and I thanked him. Uh, I actually, let me take that back. I'm not sure that he, he, I don't think he, I'm thinking of someone else. He did not read an earlier version of the paper, but he probably, uh, I'm almost certain that I sent him a copy of the paper, um, which thanked him and talked about strain analysis. So the point I'm trying to make is that Ivans or anybody else with knowledge in the field would choose spores from somebody else. If they were that careful with the letters, they would be careful with the spores. They would understand that the spores could be analyzed. Um, in terms of who had access, it's not clear because it was said that at one point, one newspaper, the New York Times said 400 people, Scott Shane at the New York Times said 400 people had access to these spores. But we don't know who shared spores with who. The anthrax letters did not, spores did not come directly from this flask. There had to be at least one or more growth steps in between. And so <laughs> I guess the point I'm trying to make is that we still do not know with any certainty what the parent source of these spores was. And yet, this is the main piece of evidence that has been used to identify Ivans as the perpetrator. There are, I suppose, more circumstantial evidence that seems to create a case against Dr. Ivans. And you did mention the pre-stamped envelopes that were used in the attacks. And in fact, the investigation found that those envelopes had print defects, which could be traced back to a post office that Dr. Ivans used, um, where these, these envelopes were purchased from, which again starts to paint a, a picture of, of Ivan's being involved. And of course, there's been much made of the um, the zip code in the return address on these letters, 08852, going back to Monmouth uh, Junction, New Jersey, which has a relation to Monmouth College, um, which had the Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority that Ivan's was obsessed with. So there are a lot of different things that certainly are circumstantial, but all do seem in some way to point to Ivan's. And perhaps one of the, the biggest pieces of circumstantial evidence would be that that uh, that accusation that in, a in December of 2001 and in April of 2002, on two separate occasions, he secretly and against protocol uh, swabbed and bleached more than 20 areas in his lab, um, which certainly is a strange thing to do in the midst of an investigation into something like the anthrax attacks. Okay, there, you've, you've said many things. Um, I'm not going to remember them all. But let me see. Well, let's start with the pre-stamped envelopes, which come yes, from the post office great. that Ivan's used. Okay, that's important because initially the FBI claimed that the only place those envelopes were sold was the post office 
in Frederick. And then when there was further investigation, it turned out that there were a number of post offices that those envelopes were um, sold at. In fact, it's, uh, it's unclear whether the post office and the FBI actually could identify all the different post offices that sold those envelopes because many of them didn't have them anymore. Um, but there were thousands that had some fine um, identifier, uh, some little tiny mistake in the printing. Now, FBI also made a claim early on that they could identify the water in which the anthrax was grown and that that came from Frederick, Maryland. Now, that was a crazy claim. Um, I remember Scott Chain at the New York Times asking me about it, and he, he wrote about it in the Times that the uh, FBI had identified it was just this water. And, of course, FBI had to back off that claim also later. They had no idea what water was used. So, yeah, there was no scientific way to um, track down the, the characteristics of the water. Um, the FBI had between 20 and 29 different laboratories doing different parts of the scientific work for it, and these were compartmentalized. So each lab only knew what it was doing. The FBI knew what all of them were doing. What, that, what finally came out was this morphotype analysis, but there are many other different analyses probably done. The NIS panel... Um, asked very pointedly why certain techniques had not been used on the anthrax, which leads me to wonder whether they actually were used and FBI didn't like those results, and so they never presented them to the public or to the National Academy of Sciences. And again, the point I'm trying to make is that the FBI made claims it couldn't support and, and overstepped uh, in various claims it made about Ivan's also claims it made about Hatfield, and um, later I'll go into ways in which it seems uh, several people, there may have been a lot of circumstantial evidence implicating um, Hatfield and Ivans, and possibly that was um, arranged prior to the letters. Well, that, that certainly would make sense if someone was being careful in, in covering up their tracks. Um, all right. Well, we've been examining this in, in, in some detail with, uh, with Ivan specifically, but let's, let's take a step back and look at what we can actually piece together about these letters and what they tell us about the people who did perpetrate these attacks. And I understand it's your contention that you've made in, in other interviews before that these, uh, these, these envelopes uh, and, and, and the, 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 the payload within seem to have been per, uh, uh, sent by people who did not believe that uh, or were not attempting to kill people. Um, this was not part of the, the plan. Why, why would you make that, that assumption? Um, apparently, the, what has been written is that the back of the envelopes had tape over them to keep them well sealed. The anthrax was placed into um, paper that was folded in a certain way to keep the spores inside. And the letters, the first set of letters talked about um, take penicillin now. So remember, this is 2001. We've already been through the Gulf War. We've heard um, at great length about Saddam Hussein and anthrax. So there's been a lot of buzz uh, about powders. There had been also been um, several well-publicized 
hoax cases of anthrax spores in Washington prior to any of this happening. So people were sort of buzzed about finding envelopes with powder. And when it said, take penicillin, and then some of them said, this is anthrax, it was very clear that the person who opened the letters was supposed to then protect themselves with an antibiotic. Um, now, although I, don't, I think the letters were sent for effect for just those reasons, I also suspect that the perpetrator or perpetrators of the letters were willing to accept collateral damage. And the reason for that is if you have a huge spore inhalation, even if you take antibiotics and even if you get all the best treatments, you probably won't survive. There was one person at Fort Detrick um, to whom this happened about 20 or 30 years ago. And so there was that possibility. What the perpetrators did not seem to know was that letters, paper is porous. I mean, we know that, right? You take a piece of paper, you put some water on it, it'll drip through. But um, no, it had not been part of the general thinking. There had been discussions about sending anthrax in letters. There had been hoaxes. William Patrick, who had led the offensive program at Fort Detrick back in the 1960s, um, had written a report that was actually commissioned by Steve Hatfill when he worked for a uh, Beltway contractor called uh, SAIC. Patrick had written uh, a report, classified report, on uh, sending anthrax through the mail. So there was buzz, but no one understood that it would actually pass through the paper on the envelope. And nobody, myself included, had any idea what size the pores were in paper and envelopes. You know, and when I looked that up at the time, I was shocked that the, the pores were huge, you know, that you could fit, um, you know, perhaps 10 or 100 anthrax spores, you know, side by side through one pore. So um, anyway, the reason people died is because spores were released in ways that were not anticipated by the perpetrators. That is interesting. And one of the points that you bring up there are the messages in the in the letters themselves, which perhaps are, are one of the, the biggest clues or could potentially be the biggest clues. And you, you mentioned, of course, that the Tom Brokaw note, which probably everyone has seen on the news if they were following the coverage at the time. It was quite widely publicized. 0-9-11-01. This is next. Take penicillin now. Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. And I mean, there are many things to say about this, but one that absolutely baffles me, and uh, and people who want more on this can go to the Wikipedia page on the 2001 anthrax attacks and go to the section on hidden message. But apparently the FBI argues there was a hidden message in there that revolved around the A's and T's in that message being especially bolded or highlighted. So this is next, take penicillin out. T, T, T. A-A-T, T-A-T, they argue, are have all been sort of bolded in a way that, that sets them out. And apparently, supposedly, this relates back to an incident with Bruce Ivins back in November of 2007 when he was seen to be throwing away a copy of Girdle Escher Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid by Douglas Hofstadter, uh, published by Douglas Hofstadter in 1979. 
1992 issue of an American scientist journal talking about the linguistics of DNA. And they actually make the argument that this is a genetic, a DNA code, a DNA sequence code with three letter groups of codons. And TTT is phenylalanine, which has a single letter designator of F, AAT, aspargine, N, TAT, tyrosine, Y, which adds up to FNY, which is a verbal assault on the, the fire department of New York. <laughs> or FNY could be a, a, maybe an ex expletive New York. So this is the actual argument that the FBI has uh, put forward in their summary report, which I find to be the most ridiculous thing that I could even imagine them saying, especially because when you actually look at the letter, those particular T's and A's are not particularly highlighted. Some of them are certainly bolded, but some of them are not. So this is something they have completely made out of thin air, as far as I can see, and shows to my mind the, the, the extent of the overreach of the FBI investigation. Assuming that this is a ridiculous analysis that has no basis in reality, what can we actually tell from the messages themselves and what was written in these letters? This, you're, you're going beyond my area of expertise. Um, of course, when I saw these letters, I thought, wow, someone's trying to implicate Muslims because they were so crude. And, and surely someone who knew forensics so well could spell penicillin. So it seemed that, again, the letters were for effect, that they were casting blame on a community. Now, that was my personal opinion. You know, everybody has their own. Well, they, they, they certainly are crude in their in their writing and spelling. Um, and of course, the speculation since since the time they were mailed was that that was intentionally so to basically mask the the real identity of the perpetrator or perpetrators. Um, and again, this brings up the question of, uh, obviously, if the people who are t attempting to be framed for this are the Muslims, death to Israel, Allah is great, being in a couple of the different letters, the, then who would have the uh, the motive and uh, and the means and the opportunity for, for doing that? And I, again, I think that this goes back to the question of the the weaponized anthrax program that you were mentioning before and which was revealed to the public, interestingly enough, in a story that was co-reported by uh, Judith Miller, of all people, at the New York Times in December of 2001, where the U.S. government basically had to come out and admit, oh, yes, we did. We were kind of working on weaponizing anthrax um, all along, but uh, we didn't tell you about it, um, which, of course, is... For people who don't know, that, that of course, was against uh, uh, conventions that the U.S. is a signatory to. So that's, uh, that's I mean, it's a highlight. Okay, let me, let me just clarify what you're trying to say, which is that we are a part of the Biological Weapons Convention, and it states that we can't own uh, quantities of um, any biological agent that aren't being used for peaceful purposes, defensive purposes, and these should be small quantities. And although it didn't, specifically state in words, you can't have anthrax powder, most people took this um, international treaty to mean just that. Now, things can be argued. Um, the treaty talks about intent. And so if you are, what the U.S. government said was that it, it yes, it had a program under the Clinton administration to see whether it could weaponize, there were several programs. One was to see whether um, they could use off-the-shelf, um, you know, just go out and buy some things and grow anthrax that any idiot could just go and uh, 
purchase some cheap things and grow anthrax, and they found they could. And then another one was to look at turning it into a, a powder, and another one was looking at, well, gee, if the Russians were, and we knew they were, they were just as we had been, and, and Ken Alabek, who was the number two man in the Russian bio-offensive program, um, and who was an anthrax expert, had defected to the United States um, in the early 1990s. So we knew a lot about the Soviet program, at least up until that point. So one, one of these um, secret programs was, was saying, well, if the Russians were going to make some terrible anthrax, what would they do? And let's try and make some really, really virulent, horrible anthrax. And, uh, you know, who knows? But Judith Miller's, the whole Judith Miller story is, is odd. Um, her book, Germs, and a very, very long article in the New York Times came out seven days before 9-11. Um, so she, her book talks a lot about bioterrorism in general, um, but revealed the existence, certainly to me and I think to the American public, of these secret programs that, had, that were being done under Clinton that most people would take as going against the treaty, but still left room for an argument that they were acceptable within the, the treaty measures. Now, the reason it's odd that that all came out then is, is Judith, you know, later was identified as using completely unreliable sources to implicate Iraq in various ways and help in the rush to war against Iraq. And Judith eventually lost her job at the New York Times after going to jail to protect a source for a couple of months. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that Judith was working later with the Bush administration um, had, had uh, sources within the Bush administration. I think uh, Libby Scooter Libby was one of, was one of her sources who was misidentified in, a, in an article um, that helped push this rush to war. Now that was again in two, probably around 2001, 2002, 2003, going back to 1998 when this book, which she co-authored with with two other writers and editors at the New York Times. Um, did she have an ulterior motive? Was, was she working with government people? Was there another reason to put this information out to the public? And I don't know the answer. I'm just posing a question. Well, it is an important question. And I guess what I was aiming at is the, the question um, that obviously there is certainly a case to be made, or at least one could imagine uh, a case to be made that this was being this attack was being perpetrated specifically as as you indicate there to to frame Iraq for this or to put the blame on Iraq and of course we did see immediately in the wake of these attacks um, various media outlets uh, especially I think ABC News um, under the investigative reporter whose name escapes me Brian Ross I believe immediately yeah. started to to uh, point the finger towards Iraq it it certainly I mean the question has to be raised of whether or not there were elements within uh, a, a, a secret program within the, the U.S. Um, bio 
uh, bioweapons um, uh, apparatus. Establishment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That that was specifically attempting to to put that out. I'm going to. Uh, I, I I'm not as f- familiar with the FBI report as you are. I'm going to assume that the FBI did not ever look at that possibility. But perhaps you can correct me on that. Um, the FBI report was predicated on several assumptions. Now, of course, they never made those clear, but if you read it carefully and follow the story, you realize that there there are major assumptions that need to be questioned. So the first one was that the anthrax spores were actually made just prior to the letters being sent. So the letters, remember, they're dated 9-11 and were mailed. The first set of letters were mailed on 9-18-2001, seven days after 9-11. So FBI postulated that in that seven-day period, anthrax was grown and dried and sent. Um, they then postulated that in this short, now three weeks later, the second set of letters was sent, and FBI postulated that again in this very short window, Somebody grew up the anthrax and and sent those letters. Now, there's absolutely no reason to think that the anthrax was grown during those periods of time. It could have been grown at any time uh, since 1998, according to what even according to what the FBI claims the carbon dating shows. Now we know that. Dugway did have powdered anthrax. We think that there may have been other government labs or or government contractor labs that may also have had powdered anthrax. We don't know for sure. We know that powdered anthrax was prepared at Fort Detrick, even though many, many people denied it um, by Johnny Zell um, and then irradiated to make it non-virulent. Now, that tells us that at least Fort Detrick and Dugway, where some of the work that Judith Miller talked about in 1998, had the ability to make powdered anthrax. But to bring this down to the ground level, it isn't really that hard to grow anthrax. It's, I mean, you grow it in a fermenter just like you grow any bacteria. The ways to grow it, to cause it to sporulate, are in the open literature. And it seems to me that the second set of letters, which had very fluffy spores that separated from each other, which highly increased their virulence because they could they could get down. And what happens with anthrax spores normally is that um, they're in the if they're in the air and then they hit the ground, and then they start sticking to other things on the ground. And then they're too big to be inhaled deep in the lung to where they can actually turn into vegetative bacteria and start to cause the disease anthrax. So these spores sort of were much more... um, They stayed in the air longer. They tended to to repel. They, They may have had a... Um, an electrostatic charge, that's that's controversial, I don't know, um, but they um, separated from each other. So spores, uh, or rather particles, um, up to five microns in size are thought to be able to get easily into the, the recesses of the lungs to cause anthrax. Spores normally are one to two microns in size. 
And But if they clump together, you know, they're too big. So they don't go down and they don't cause damage. These spores were special. Now, it may be that if you just wash the spores enough, and it seems logical, you can make a concentrated um, powder like uh, the spores. And, and you could probably get a trillion spores a gram, which is what the, the letter anthrax contained. What we um, don't know how to do in the open literature is, is how to make these things separate from each other and stay in the air longer and um, they are less likely to, to bind to other things in the environment. So they may re-aerosolize more easily too from the ground. So they may go up again from the ground, whereas at least in my understanding, and again, I'm, I'm not a scientist who's used this stuff at the bench, but my understanding is generally once it hits the ground, at least historically, it would usually stay there. It's not entirely true. I mean, you can put, probably put fans in a room and cause these spores to re-aerosolize. But in general, these spores were said to be to have some property that was unusual and made them more virulent than anybody expected. So that was the story well, about the spores. That raises an important point because uh, my understanding, Dr. Ivins was an immunologist and these were silica-coated, electrostatically charged, 1.5 to 5 micron-sized spores that my understanding is he would not have had the knowledge to have produced that, certainly not working by himself. Am I incorrect in that assumption? Um, the vast majority of his co-workers said he did not have the knowledge um, to do that, had never done it, um, and that yet, and that he was a vaccine scientist. Now, um, that's it's true that he was a vaccine scientist. It's true that he did not use powdered anthrax in any of his experiments. They used liquid, and they used a sort of an aerosolizer and would, you know, force small lab animals to inhale it. Um, but I mean, Ivan's is was an intelligent man. Um, so there's certainly the possibility that he could have figured out how to um, make them in this fashion. That's possible. The, the issue is that the FBI claimed that it tried many, many times, and I can't remember, it was 40 or 400 times, they said, to reverse engineer this anthrax. So they tried all the, the their contracted scientists, tried many methods to produce anthrax that looked like the anthrax in the letters. And at the end of the day, FBI said they couldn't do it. So we don't really know what the method was. We can't say whether Ivan's knew that method or not. We can't say whether Ivan's had access to equipment that could produce those kind of spores because we don't know what equipment was required to produce those kind of spores. There are people at Fort Detrick, in Ivan's department, um, many have said you couldn't possibly do this, but some have said you could. And I don't feel that it's, it's useful to make a blanket statement about whether he could have done it. Uh, I think there, it's possible that he could have done it. Could he have done it in the, in the time allotted? That, again, is very controversial. Some people say yes, but many people say no. Um, Again, we don't know how, he, how it was done, so we can't say. Um, but to me, given that very short time period, now let's go back. We, the 9-11 happened on 
and the first set of letters were mailed on 918. Okay, seven days. Maybe somebody could have done all that in seven days. But maybe there was already some anthrax lying around that it maybe was produced for another purpose. Maybe it was part of a government program. Maybe it was a non-governmental anthrax. We don't know. Um, I've pointed out that between 1997 and 19, and sorry, between 1997 and 2006, there were at least um, eight countries that published papers using Ames anthrax, and I would assume that other a number of other countries probably also had Ames anthrax. So, had there been some pre-existing anthrax, which may have come from Ivan's, you know, the parent spores may have come from Ivan's flask or from somewhere else. Um, that would have made it much easier to get it into these letters and have it mailed by September 18th. Or I, sh- I shouldn't say when they were mailed. Um, we're not sure. There was a, there's a window of when they went into a mailbox, a, a one or one to three day window on these two sets of letters. But uh, I believe they were postmarked on the 18th, but I could be wrong. That's right. They were postmarked from September 18th to October 9th. So those those were the, the dates between which they were postmarked. So definitely by September 18th, they were in the postal system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, uh, Dr. Ness, I'm afraid um, we are almost out of time already. And I, I, I realize we've only really begun to scratch the surface, but I think we have made some headway on, on some of the, the main points. Uh, there's a lot more that we could discuss, and, and hopefully we will be, have a chance to continue this at a later date. But in the meantime, for people whose interest in this case has been peaked or re-peaked because of our conversation, what resources would you recommend that people go to? I mean, we are going to include quite a few um, links in the show notes for this, but just in general, for people who are interested in this case, what would you recommend uh, they, they look into in order to start getting a handle on what really happened? Oh, well... Of course, you could spend a year reading about this case. Um, Certainly, the report by the National Academy of Sciences is very important. Um, The FBI's report, in which they closed the case from 2010, is uh, important as well. Um, If you go to my blog, which is anthraxvaccine.blogspot.com, and you sort of click on the picture of me at the top, which was taken when I was giving a talk, on the anthrax letters, you'll see what I, what talk I gave then, which uh, sort of is a very, very quick uh, summary of what I found to be wrong with the FBI's case at that time in 2010. All right. Well, I, as I say, we've only scratched the surface, but I think we'll leave it there for now and uh, and invite people to continue exploring this. As I said in my interview with Robbie Martin, and as I'll repeat now, I think this is an exceptionally important point to uh, to to not let slip down that memory hole, because I think that's ultimately what the FBI case closed, rush to judgment was about, was trying to get this case out of the limelight, um, because obviously it didn't produce the narrative that I think its perpetrators wanted, but that's my own speculation. Yeah. If, if I can just, again, say one, one thing. After the FBI spent a million dollars on this National Academy of Sciences report, again, they closed the case way before they issued the final report. That was very odd. I mean, this was the report that was supposed to, you know, close the book on anthrax. And, and then they suddenly 
issued their report out of nowhere before they have, I think they had made clear earlier that they were waiting for the NAS report. So that's another hmm. oddity. Um, just one in a long list. All right. Well, Dr. Ness, I think we'll leave it there for now. Thank you again for your time. I really do appreciate it. You're very it. welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye.